Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Before we get started here, I want to uh, tell you about some sponsors. Sponsors are what make this show possible, and uh, here they are. Here's one, Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, and online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This week's show is also brought to you by Aspiration. At Aspiration, their investment strategies are built for the middle class. Signing up takes as little as 500 bucks in just five minutes of your time. You can sign up and find out more at aspiration.com slash longform. I should tell you, though, uh, past performance is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that any investment product will achieve its objectives, generate profits, or avoid losses. Investing involves risk, and alternative investments may not be suitable for everyone. So before investing, consider your investment objectives. Okay, here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky, my co-host from Long Form. Hey, Evan. Hey. No, Aaron. Aaron's out. Aaron's out. Aaron's wandering the country. He'll be back. He will be back. We someday. can do this without him. We've proven it before. It's true. I have a, I have a question for you. Yes. So, moral question, ethical question. Uh, at what age do you stop letting children win? You mean in uh, games and things? Yeah, like I I I recently uh, uh, beat a teenager at a video game. I'm very conflicted about it. Like I'm not talking about my son is very young. I, I don't. I, you should, he shouldn't be playing. Video he can't games. win anything. So I'm going to turn that question around and say the thing that you should be thinking about is not when you should stop beating a teenager at video games. The question you should be asking yourself is why are you so good at video games? <laughs> It has nothing to do with the fact that we were playing the video game that this room we're sitting in right now is built to play well, in. That was uh, a good sentence. Let me tell you this. My grandfather used to play me in chess when I was a child. And uh, he played me in chess. A little kid, he taught me to play chess. He beat me every <laughs> single time. And then when I was, I think, 13 or 14, I beat him. And then he never played me again. That was it? Yep. Was that like the lesson or he was like too prideful a man to ever lose? I don't know. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, all right, I should just keep winning until I can't win anymore. That's my advice. Uh, another thing I've been thinking about, Evan, in addition to my guilt over beating this uh, young man, is, uh, is is the person that you interviewed this week. Yes, I interviewed uh, George Qureshi, who is the editor and uh, co-founder of uh, Howler magazine, which is a soccer magazine. I happen to be uh, a person who follows the sport of soccer myself. Uh, it's a really interesting outfit. They do great work. They're trying to appeal to a particular uh, set of people, American soccer fans. And uh, it's primarily a print publication, which uh, I just wanted to talk to him about that mix of things, what it takes to run something like that. 
and uh, it was just fun. He's a fun, fun person to talk he to. Is, he's like a, he's like a, a truly like wonderful guy. I spent some time with him. He was on a panel that I moderated in Austin and uh, he was great. Like, I feel like those panels, often people are like kind of bullshitting and self-promotional and it was like a, it was a panel about like how you do this, how you run a small magazine with not a massive budget. And he was super honest about it. Like it was, this is how it is. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's great. Like you feel great when you put an issue out. I'm not trying to cop your whole interview, but he was, uh, he's just a great guy. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. There's a lot of that in this, uh, in this interview. What else is in this intro? What's left in this intro? Well, we got sponsors. And uh, if you want to put the word out about something, uh, something that's important to you, you might want to share with all your friends and people in your, uh, in your email contacts, you would probably create a tiny letter. Uh, Say. Everyone's doing it. It's easy to do. It's simple. It's powerful. It's from the people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. And here's Evan with George. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I don't actually know how to pronounce your last name. Qureshi. Qureshi. Although I don't think that's right. In Pakistan, I don't think it's Qureshi. Are you Pakistani? My dad is half Pakistani, half Persian. Grew up in England. Where did you grow up? Tampa, Florida. Hmm. He came over to the U.S. for college. He played soccer in college and um, was drafted. Number one draft of the 1975 NASL uh, college draft. And, and He was? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, and Did he play for the Tampa Bay Rowdies? Yeah, 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 yeah. God, I watched um, that stuff when I was a kid. Totally. Uh, the Atlanta Chiefs. I grew up in Atlanta. Okay. Atlanta Chiefs were my team. They had a goalkeeper named Graham Tut, who was my soccer coach also on the yes, side. Because yes. I guess they didn't pay enough. That's what they... My dad did that to... Like, he coached every child in Tampa Bay at some point. <laughs> wow. Uh, 70s England was not kind to, like, a guy who was, like, has dark brown skin and, you know, parents from Pakistan and whatnot. So he played soccer all the time. Uh-huh. Like, four or five teams at a time you know, age groups up, you know, his own, you know, whatever. He was always playing, and that was that was how he, how he got out. When you were a kid, was he still playing, or was he, was no. he finished playing? No, he had finished. Um, I was born in 1982. I think he retired right around then. He coached me for a little while, and then he was a little intense, just because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he had pretty high standards, I guess. And, and uh, But a lot of his teammates had kids, and I played with them, and, and so one of their dads took over, and... Um, but he was always really nice. He, every year he would sit me down and say, you don't have to play if you don't want to, which was nice. I always wanted to play, but um, I appreciated it later when I was when I was an, an adult or, you know, in high school. And I decided I actually didn't want to play. Oh, so, you quit playing soccer in high school. I, I played with some really good players. We were always really strong. Like my high school team won the national championship uh, my senior year. But I had quit early on that year because I... <laughs> like we went, away for, we went away for a vacation and then I came back and I lost my starting position. I was like, you know, I've worked... S- so hard to do this and then to, to get here and then I was so mad and I was like you know what? I don't need I don't need to do this like uh-huh. I've been doing this my whole life and I was about to get into college but I wasn't using soccer to get into college I wasn't uh, trying to get a scholarship in college yeah and uh, I was like screw it I don't I don't want to do this uh, but then they went and won the national championship <laughs> so uh, <laughs> whatever uh, but your dad was okay with that oh yeah yeah huh. no he the whole point for him was so that I wouldn't have to feel like i had to play soccer as crazy as that, as that sounds to, yeah. in order to make a living or be who I wanted to be. Oh, wow. Is he still around? Yeah. He actually just took a job uh, as the GM and president of the Tampa Bay Rowdies this year. Well, this this actually is a good good place to start. So people might be wondering why we're just talking about soccer the whole time. But <laughs> right. they don't know who you are because you run a soccer magazine that you also co-founded called Howler. You should probably say why it's called Howler because people who aren't soccer fans might not even know that. A howler is a like a terrible mistake. Like if the ball goes through the goalkeeper's legs or a striker misses from, you know, 
yards away that's a howler and uh it's an they use it in england it's an english term and and so we we're self-consciously very much an american soccer magazine but we like the sense of humor that the english bring to it and when we started it and it, hopefully it's changing a little bit i think it is um americans were really sort of protective and and didn't have a ton of irony <laughs> yeah, yeah you know or it could be uh, very uh gung-ho uh as fans and kind of like right without and, the kind of like deep history and sense of humor about themselves and for years i think that was a little bit justified because soccer kept coming and then going away and coming and going away and so you know criticism of soccer seemed almost like an existential threat i guess to the Mm -hmm. sport here but we felt when we founded the magazine that we were in a place where it was strong and we could laugh at ourselves and have fun with it and so that's why we called it howler i also think it's got a great you know a howler is like a big yell, right? So yeah, it's a nice name for a magazine. Yeah, for sure. So you were you were you played some soccer. Obviously, you have like soccer in your life. Grew up around it or with it. Tell me how you guys ended up starting the magazine. I was working in New York as an editor. Uh, I was an assistant editor at HarperCollins, mm-hmm. working for a guy named David Hershey, who was a big soccer fan himself. Mm-hmm. I had worked at a couple of magazines before that, both went away. Which magazines were those? National Geographic Adventure yep. and Condé Nast Portfolio. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. So I was sort of looking at my life and thinking, I really love what I do. I love the editing. I love working with writers. I love I love it, but I don't like working on books that I don't like or, you know, doing what other people tell me to, to do, Yeah, I guess. Uh, so I called, um, I called my friend Mark Kirby. He interviewed me for my internship at National Geographic Adventure when I was in college. I was a senior in college. And then he offered it to me, and I, I deferred, I guess. I went abroad for a year, and um, I was traveling, and I, I decided I wanted to come home uh, and start working and because uh, I had saved some money when I was teaching. I was teaching English abroad. Uh-huh. And I called him, and I was like, hey, I want to do that internship now. And he's like, okay, but I don't work there anymore. Uh, he had moved on to GQ. <laughs> so I came back. It all worked out. I, I took the internship. I worked there. Um, uh, wait, at GQ or at no, National Geographic? at Adventure. Oh, okay. Um, but he and I stayed in touch. We're both, we, we realized we were both soccer fans, and we played soccer together sometimes in you know, the city leagues here. And I had... I'd seen a friend of mine start a small magazine mm-hmm. called Kill Screen, my friend Jamin yeah, yeah. Warren. So I saw him do that, uh-huh. and I thought, man, if there's an audience for a, for a video game magazine, we can definitely build one for a soccer magazine. And Mark had recently left GQ, and, mm-hmm. and I had actually posed this to him when he was still there, and he was like, I can't do that, um, just don't have time. And But then he left and sort of left publishing, and uh, he wanted to dabble a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and so he said, yeah, let's do it. And so then we, so that, that's what started. What is sort of the first step in starting a magazine like that? I mean, one of the things that I think people who know about Howler find interesting is the print component, that it is, Mm -hmm. it's a print magazine. There's an online aspect to it, but it's unlike many things, including like what I do. It's not in this vein of like, now we'll try to make a magazine work online. Now we'll try to, it's like actually more traditional in in a real sense. And so I'm curious how you came to decide like what form it would take once you wanted to start it. We sort of came, came to that decision pretty early because uh-huh. we figured if we gave people like a physical product that they would give us money and we couldn't <laughs> do it without money. It's a, it's very old fashioned. I don't know. And it was also based on a couple of calculations about who our audience would be. And we figured American soccer fans have been sort of a little bit ignored by mainstream sports press. For um, sure. A lot of the design and sort of the things that you can buy or own or show off if you're a soccer fan aren't all that well designed they're not they don't look great and yet the audience is pretty upscale like it's a 
it's people who have who are well educated, who who appreciate nice things, who have some disposable income. I mean, I'm speaking pretty broadly here, yeah. and there are a bunch of different audiences. Yeah, there's like sort of like here, the bougie version totally. of the U.S. soccer fan, and then there's the there's also like the immigrant version of the soccer fan, exactly. who's actually like following teams from where they where they came from. But but like you that. know, if you walk around Brooklyn on a Saturday morning and walk past like Floyd or Woodwork and see those people coming out of the bars wearing their Arsenal jerseys. That's that's who I'm talking about. Yeah, they're in the first group there. And so what happened was I think Howler became uh, like almost like a totem of their fanhood. Like it was something they could show off that felt like it hit the same things they liked about other things in their lives that they showed off. At the time, I wanted to make a really beautiful, big sports magazine, a soccer magazine. Illustration has always been a big part of the mag and photography. And I think that's fun. Yeah. So, yeah. And then logistically... Did you go out and fundraise for it? Did you say, like, we'll put our own money into it to start with? Or we were, how did you get off the ground? We were a Kickstarter campaign. Oh, right, right, right. And we set a goal of $50,000. Uh-huh. Um, and Jamin, Jamin, when he started Kill Screen, I think he set a goal of 5000 This was a couple <laughs> years before us. And raised, like, six-something. And I think he looked back and was like, man, I wish Kickstarter had been bigger when I did, you know. Yeah. My- I guess that was before the era of, like, things really blowing up. Yeah. Really got- so we raised $69,001. Uh, and that paid for the first issue and every, I call it subsistence magazine making cause every issue pays for the next one, mm-hmm. but the margins are pretty slim on a print magazine. As you can imagine, I mean, after you get to shipping and we pay for the, you know, the content, the, the art, the writing, the printing is massively expensive. The mag weighs over a pound. So yeah. like, shipping is expensive. It's also like we're, it's 10 inches by 12 inches, which is the same format as ESPN, the magazine, if you're you know mm-hmm. familiar with that. But, but what we learned was that actually at that size, the printer was having to use more signatures of pa- like, sorry, more sheets of paper. They couldn't get as many sheets off of one big sheet as, uh-huh. as, as they could have, if we were like slightly smaller. And so we were just paying more in terms of you know, for the paper costs, for the for the shipping, then then I don't know. If if someone had sort of drawn up a business plan and been like, okay, here's how you maximize profits on a print magazine, we probably would have done things a little differently. But as it, we we sort of led with the aesthetics and like thought, okay, this is this is what we want to make, and now let's figure out how to pay for it. And we we've been able to do it, but um, yeah, you run into like little difficulties and learn things like that. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things quickly, tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up is Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Uh, If you've ever tried to build a website yourself, you know it's a huge pain. Here's my guess. Uh, You haven't even tried to build a website. At least if you're anything like me, you haven't tried to build a website. I can't tell you how many times I've had an idea and I was like, that'll be great. And then I've started to think about building the website and been like, "Eh, I'll just do that tomorrow countless ideas that have never come to fruition just because I didn't want to deal with building a site. Uh, But with Squarespace, you don't have to dread that part. They make it super easy. Everything is beautiful and powerful and works on every device. All you have to do is pick a look that works for you and get going on your idea. If you hit any snags, you won't. But if you do, they've got fantastic 24-7 support. It's all just 8 bucks a month. Plus, you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Start a free trial right now. Squarespace.com. No credit card required. When you do decide to sign up, make sure to use the, uh, the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Uh, and remember, that's not just a way to save some money. You're also supporting this show, uh, which is exactly what Squarespace has been doing for years now. Thanks, Squarespace. Also sponsoring the show this week, The Great Courses. For 25 years, The Great Courses has been delivering lectures from top professors and experts for the pure 
pleasure of learning. They've got over 500 series on tons of topics, including history, science, literature, philosophy, and more. And everything is available in any format you could want, digital downloads, streaming, even CDs and DVDs, so you can learn on your own time. Uh, A few weeks ago, I told you about a course they offer, Writing Creative Nonfiction, which is a great choice if you're looking to start doing the kind of work we talk about every week on this show. But if you're just looking to uh, improve your writing generally, another course you could try is Analysis and Critique, How to Engage and Write About Anything. It's taught by Professor Dorsey Armstrong of Purdue University, and it gives you just all these basic fundamentals for good writing. Uh, So here's what you should do. If you're interested in that or any of the other courses at The Great Courses, uh, check out thegreatcourses.com slash longform. That's thegreatcourses.com slash longform. If you go there, you get up to 80% off how to engage and write about anything in eight of their other bestsellers. Uh, Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to George and Evan. Okay, I'm just really interested in the business aspects of it in terms of like, when you were pulling people in to be involved in it, you know, mm-hmm. whether design or like, obviously, I don't know how much you already knew about like finding a printer and, you know, figuring out how it's going to get printed and shipped. When you say the original 60 some thousand dollars, were you like, I'll pay you a couple grand, I'll pay you a couple grand or how, how did you, or did you say like this, come join me in my effort, like volunteer at first and then later, like there'll be jobs for everyone. That was, that was probably the scariest part. Mm-hmm. Like thinking, okay, and it, there was a team of us. It wasn't just me. And, you know, we had uh, two designers, um, it was Mark and myself, and then two designers. And, uh, you know, they shouldered some of that, and they, finding the printer and dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very worried about the money. I'd never started a business before. I'd never produced a physical thing before. Like, you know, <laughs> had somebody make something and then send it to me. Um, and, and, yeah, budgeting out for stories and for art was really scary because you're like, well, I get one shot. And then if I promise too much money, you can't renegotiate. Like, you don't, you know, and you're already, like, asking people to do stuff for, you know, way below what they normally get for what they do. Yeah. Uh, that was part of the premise of Howler. We thought, okay, we worked at big magazines, so we want to make a magazine that looks like that and feels like that. But we don't have... We don't have any of the resources of, like, a Conan Haster or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, we sort of cobbled it together. But the people who worked on it were all really good. And so I think in the end it worked out, and we figured out how to keep that model going. And when you say you go sort of issue to issue in terms of sustainable, like, uh, what did you call it, subsistence uh, magazine yeah. making, it's reader-funded primarily, or is it advertising-funded primarily? Uh, it's primarily reader-funded. Yeah. Each issue is $15. Uh, each subscription is 50 we have around 2,500 subscribers. Uh, you know, our print run is around, this last issue was 10,000. The most we've done is 14 mm-hmm. for the World Cup issue because we got a big order from Barnes & Noble. Any, any advertising we get is basically based on a relationship where the person writing the check for a big brand or whoever likes what we do and sort of believes in it. You know, there's no argument on a spreadsheet for... Hey, let's advertise in Howler. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know that much about print advertising. I mean, I know a little bit about print advertising, but I, w- I would think that they're in the same way that these sort of like the types of fans who might subscribe to it also might occupy some like income level that like a certain advertiser could be like, I could sell jerseys to these people. That's an argument that we make. Yeah. But it's not one that media buyers or brands are used to hearing. I mean, most most print Advertising is is bought through third party houses that, yeah, that do yeah. this, and it's not really worth the time of a big like brand manager, advertising guy at a at a at like you know pick a pick a huge company to spend their time like giving us tens of thousands of dollars, whatever. Like they're you know they're they're looking at campaigns that are 
in the millions and and I don't know we have to we have to hit some sort of personal interest with them right. in order for them to really buy in and, and want to work with us I mean it seems like it's plausible that actually being reader supported is a sort of more secure place to be I love in many it. ways yeah I love it because our readers love us I think I mean when we mess up we mess up a lot they forgive us like they <laughs> we had a shipping disaster that you know when we used to ship through Amazon you build a a relationship with people initially because they like the product but then because I think they I, I, I think maybe this is me imposing like some narrative on this but um, because they see us working hard to provide something that they didn't have before that they really like and so the money that comes from readers is bite sizes compared to you know a check we might get from you know once in a while from an advertiser that means so much more because it's like okay you are actually you're benefiting from this in yeah. a really in a real way I don't make a lot of money and when I give my money to some something like that I'm thinking, well, I really want what you're making. Mm-hmm. And that's a good feeling, I think, from on the other side. Yeah. When someone says that to me. And I also feel like the sense that there's actually like human beings on the other end of the thing makes a big difference. Like whenever you're buying something, subscribing to something that feels like it's coming from a giant building on Fifth Avenue or whatever, you just kind of like, my subscription's late, I'm really angry, cancel my subscription or whatever. But when you when you're dealing with like, I know about the people who founded this. Like, I know what they're trying to do, and I support it. Like, that's a whole different. Well, we get those ballpark. tweets too. Yeah, but then <laughs> the difference is that I respond to them, and they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, no, I love what you guys do. Don't worry about it." Like, you know, hopefully one day we'll become so big that I cannot respond to every complaint. But at this stage, I find that I have to because it really builds. You know, we're going to lose a certain number of people every issue. That's fine. That's just the business. But. Um, there are ways we can keep people around and not just through the content or whatever the products through being nice to them and responding to them when they have a problem. We have a guy in Canada right. who, for some reason, the USPS just does not get his issue to him for like a month after we send it out. And every time, and he emails us and we're just like, if I could control the USPS, I would change so many things. I would like, whatever, I would change this. Um, but he still subscribes <laughs> and he gets it. So when you guys, when you set out to create the magazine, mm-hmm. you know, you would think that, okay, you've decided it's going to be a soccer magazine for sort of like the American soccer fan in different ways. You've got a a topic that you're around, but actually like the types of stories that are possible within that, given how big soccer is in the rest of the world are enormous. And I'm curious how you conceive like what types of stories you guys do, particularly long form stuff. Like you do it like packages that you would expect around the world cup or other things, but like, what goes into deciding like what is a howler feature the longer features well i wouldn't i wouldn't conflate our audience with the topics that we cover mm. because the nice thing about you know soccer fans in america is that their interests are kind of infinite like mm-hmm. there's a huge world of soccer stories and we don't live in a country that has such a strong tradition of of club or or even international soccer that people sort of are don't look beyond it they're interested in soccer anywhere and so that gives us a huge amount of room where we can bring in stories that I think if we if we were talking to a an audience that was sort of more focused on what's happening you know in their country or in with their with their league we wouldn't be able to publish the stories we do so we always try to hit a few things that are going to be of interest to our fans so you know fans of American soccer so you know we talk about American soccer players um we're shooting mixed discrude later this afternoon, right? And The man of the flowing hair. Totally. Um, we've got him at a hair salon, uh, which is going to be fun. <laughs> um, we service 
our readers with that stuff. But then we also bring stories, I think, that I'm just personally interested in. Like, um, you know, and, and soccer sort of serves those up constantly. <laughs> you know, there's no shortage of weird stories to, to tell. Yeah, and and I, I'm amazed for a small magazine how much international reporting you have. I mean, it makes sense given the topic, but how do you wrangle these stories? I mean, you've got stories from people going to Bolivia, people in Brazil, people in Eastern Europe. You know, these stories are, are coming from everywhere. Do you find people who are already located there? Are you paying their expenses? Like, how does it work? Yeah, there's sort of a, it's a hodgepodge. Um, we have a really good network of writers who travel for other stories and for, you know, to, you know, we piggyback mm-hmm. <laughs> on a lot of, Luke O'Brien has written a bunch for us. Um, and he was going to Brazil for, for Slate anyway. And I said, okay, well, when you go to Manaus, just write some crazy gonzo story about Manaus. I had heard some comment on Twitter from a guy who knows Brazil pretty well that Manaus was like the Bangkok of South, you know, South America, <laughs> like the seediest kind of place. And so, and Luke, Luke wrote a story during the 2006 World Cup where he went to a like a very high price brothel. In, yeah, I remember that was for Slate. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I loved it. And I thought, okay, just go to go to Manaus and just try to get in trouble or do whatever. And I, we had an intern who was down there as well, and so <laughs> who that, features in the story. Yeah, that became then. part of the story. And and it turns out they they Luke was had all these plans for him, but then he found out that they went to the same. Uh, small, small school, like Quaker school. And he's like, I can't, I can't put this kid in danger. Um, <laughs> Robert, who wrote the piece that you're talking about in Bolivia, yeah. um, and Bolivia sort of features in it, but it's not the main, the main part. But he just, um, he went down there because he was interested in this guy he was profiling. And it turned out to be a, a big story for us that, that Longform published. So the premise of the story is they want to launch a soccer team in, in Miami. That's, they want to get into the MLS. Yeah, they being David Beckham, Simon Fuller, who's the creator of American Idol and uh, this guy named Marcelo Claret, who we didn't really know much about, but is, you know, suppose, you know, apparently an independently wealthy, like billionaire from Bolivia who lives in Miami or used to live in Miami and is now the CEO of Sprint. And so is this sort of trifecta of really rich dudes who want to start a soccer team in Miami. And Robert Andrew Powell, who wrote the story, and has written, I think, some of our best pieces. Uh, you wrote a great book about soccer, too. Oh, so yeah. good. He went to live in Ciudad Juarez during like the height of when that city was like the most dangerous city in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, but he wrote he wrote the book about the soccer team, and so it was a great way to look at the city. Um, you know, as a citizen of Miami, he lives in Miami now and has for a long time. You know, and a soccer fan uh, and a good, really good writer. He wanted. He was interested in this guy. The third guy, the Bolivian the guy. Third guy. Well, yeah. I mean, he was interested in the whole thing, but it just turns out that this, like, ironically, this this like super wealthy CEO of a Fortune 100 company was also the easiest to get to. <laughs> right. uh, of the three. Yes. Yeah. Um, You're not getting to David Beckham. No. Most likely. No. He's 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 off promoting his whiskey and his you know whatever uh, clothing lines and hair products and I don't even know what. So. Uh, he decided to look into this guy and he sort of, you know, Robert's a funny guy. He, he writes for us because he likes us, not because it makes any business sense for him. Even though we pay him, we pay him better than I'm able to pay a lot of writers because I really, really value what he brings to the mag. And I think he deserves it. So he, he sort of went off. He was like, look, I'm going to look into this guy. And I was like, great, do whatever you want. You know, he's that kind of writer for us. And, uh, so he flew to Bolivia. (laughs) He bought the ticket himself. We we're just paying him back. Um, (laughs) this was last summer. Uh, and he's like, and the next thing I know, I like get, I get a text message from him and he's sent, he's sent me a selfie of himself on the field 
at a like a Copa Amer- a Copa Liber- Libertadores uh, semifinal match of the team that he's going to report on. This this guy Clare also owns the best team in Bolivia. Yeah, I'm like okay, like you're down on the field. That's great. Wow. Um, and he just got, he, he just started reporting and then he flew to Kansas City. And, and, you know, I actually, he ended up staying in a hotel, but I put out a call on Howler's Twitter account and said, hey, any Kansas City people who could put up a writer? And we got a bunch of responses. And, mm-hmm. and so this is sort of, you know, the undercurrent is how, how do we get these stories done? Like, that's yeah. how. That's how. Um, then he went to Kansas City, met, met with Clare and took him to a, he took him to his first Kansas City soccer game for sure. We think maybe his first MLS game where there's no, we haven't seen any evidence that he's been to one before. Which the irony being, this is a man who says that he wants to start an MLS franchise. Yes, and in fact, this is his second attempt at that. He was trying in the late, like 2008, 2009 to partner with FC Barcelona to bring a team to Miami. So, yeah. you know, the story became, I mean, it was about this guy. It was a profile of Claré, but it was really about, in my opinion, who are the people who want to own soccer in the u.s like who who owns it these guys david beckham had a, a 25 million dollar franchise fee written into his first contract with mls so he you know t- contrast that with i think new york city fc the new team here the fee was reported at i think 100 million dollars so mm. he's getting a great deal and it turned out that beckham's group in miami they they've been fighting to get waterfront property for a little while now they went after i think 36 acres of some of the last undeveloped property down there and the last sale of that property uh valued it at 100 million dollars an acre so mm-hmm. these guys are going to pay a, hundred, a 25 million dollar franchise fee uh but we're asking the city of miami to give them 3.6 billion dollars in land subsidies i mean that's not about the soccer team like, it's a business story uh, yeah it's a grab yeah. for incredible wealth yeah by incredibly wealthy people. So the story was fantastic, and it really did, I mean, as someone who, like, I don't know the ins and outs of, like, even how the Major League Soccer works and how the franchises work and all that stuff, like, it really dug into that, this sort of, like, mysterious business of how is this really happening and, like, how is it coming about? And then, but then there was this, like, moment in the piece that kind of blew up when it came out, which you can describe, but... That was extremely contentious. Yeah. So the background is that Robert reported the story, the Kansas City part, in October of last year. The league is is a single entity. Every player contract, they're not owned by the individual teams, they're owned by the league, which keeps costs down because there's really very little competition. Uh, you, you know, the teams can't drive the the prices of the players up, the contracts and whatever, um, by competing with each other. They're, they're signed by the league and then distributed in via, you know, via various mechanisms. This was back in October, but at the end of January, the the latest collective bargaining agreement between the players and the league was set to expire, and those are five-year periods. And Robert quoted the owner of one of the Kansas City teams as saying that, you know, if the if the players were to strike, that they would fire them all and hire new ones. And for various reasons, that was a quote that they vigorously objected to. So there were a couple things going on. One was that that's a, that's a very explosive thing to say as a someone involved in like labor negotiations, you mm-hmm. know, to a reporter. But then th- then this other aspect of it kind of blew up because there was some question of like it was overheard in a in a social setting in which maybe the guy claims not to have known that it was a reporter and then maybe claims to have never said it at all. So we tried to be very transparent in the actual stage management that we reveal in the piece. So, you know, we added some stuff to make it very clear how how these exchanges took place. Yeah. But basically, Marcelo Clore brought Robert, you know, they were watching the game together. They brought him, he brought him up to the sprint box at halftime. So Robert was a guest of this guy. One of the owners of Kansas City comes into the box. Uh, the three of them are talking. Marcelo introduces Robert to this guy. His name is Cliff Illig as a writer for Howler, 
reporting a story on him. Cliff apparently says something like, oh, you know, yeah, I know Howler. My son reads it, whatever. So that that's clear that he understood Robert was a reporter. Mm-hmm. A minute or two later, the owner who actually said the quote, a guy named Rob Heineman, comes in to the box, and it's the four of them talking. And Robert is not introduced to him and doesn't introduce himself to him. He's observing the conversation. He's he's there to, you know, watch this. And, and, and Marcelo is asking all these questions about the business of you know, pretty like if you read the piece, pretty basic questions that you would think he'd he'd know the answers to if you're if you're this far in the process of trying to get a team. Um, and that's when Heinemann says what he said, and then he leaves. And and then Robert and Marcelo walk down, and Marcelo then says something about Major League Soccer. He likes it because it's quote unquote communist, uh, which is another that's that's, that's the quote that he was pushing that yeah. he denied saying. Uh. Basically, Rob Heinemann did not know that Robert was a reporter. As far as he knew, he was a s- complete stranger. And so we felt that Robert, by A, being invited into this press box, or into the luxury box, uh, B, by being introduced to, you know, he was introduced to uh, this guy's business partner, and C, by being a stranger, uh, you know, in this guy's presence in a, in a group of four, it wasn't like he was walking by and overheard it, really cleared the burdens mm-hmm. that, that a reporter had. And has. did you feel, were you making this decision in the context of editing the story and knowing that this was going to be a big uh, deal or did it surprise you when I knew it would be a big deal when it blew up yeah I didn't get this I didn't get the text until January uh-huh. so the CBA expired end of January but they really had until March 8th to strike a deal because that was the the first game of the season so sometime in February we I told Robert hey go, you go to Kansas City and tell them we have this and and ask them if he'd like to expand on those comments um, and that was a way for us a to sort of do some due diligence and you know try to get a, another quote. Uh, but also, you know, we're an industry magazine. Uh, I work with these guys pretty closely. You know, we're going to run something they don't like, but I can at least do them a courtesy and give them a heads up. I don't think, I think that was a decision we made that I don't think a lot of other magazines might have made, but in that, in that case, it felt right to me. And so we did. And then there was immediate and vigorous pushback, but we, we published the quote. I mean, it seemed like there was a whole, like, journalistic ethics discussion like uh like gamergate or something you know it's yeah, like a, yeah it's about ethics and journalism kind of thing that emerged out of it that i just i just saw like in your twitter feed that you responded to like the thousands of tweets or something that felt like a, a sideshow honestly i mean <laughs> really yeah kansas city sent us a couple of denials that we ran with the piece um clary sent us a denial that we ran with the piece and if you read kansas city's second one which is much longer closely they're making two arguments one is it was unethical to run that quote because this guy didn't know he was talking to a reporter, and he didn't say it. Those don't fit together. No, they don't. So oftentimes when a reporter is reporting a story, they'll hear a story that someone will tell about someone else, and then they'll go to verify it, and that that person who the story is being told about will say, oh, no, that didn't happen. And then you're like, okay, well, hmm, they're denying that this happened. These were quotes that were said to a reporter. So if you're denying the quote, you're actually saying that, none, you know, you're calling his entire credibility into question, and, and he, he heard this stuff. And so I had no question that Robert was telling the truth. I mean, he's, he's credible. He's really good. I think his reporting was amazing on this story. If I had any doubt, or if, if it had been, I think, another writer, I might have had a little more doubt. But this guy, I, w- I had no problem sort of backing him and believing him. And has there been continued fallout from it? Like the Kansas City, that clubs wrote your thing saying uh, they would never talk to you again, or like they would not give you access anymore and things like that. Like, has that, has that happened? Uh, we don't know yet. I uh, mean, we haven't really made a request, yeah. so they haven't had a chance to turn us down. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that that's the scary part for us. I mean, we're a tiny, tiny, tiny company. The irony is that part of the story, the quotes are about how 
the league is is a single entity. If the, if the owners of Kansas City wanted to, they could probably convince the owners of every other team to to blackball us. We are working on a couple projects with other MLS teams. Those are going on fine, but you know, you, you never know. Well, it kind of highlights the another aspect that I wanted to ask you about, which is just there's sort of like you're you're writing about these teams or businesses that uh, you, there's like an access journalism question, like how do you get in there and uh, and then there's also sort of like a fandom question, like to what extent do you, are you guys fans and you're writing as fans of the sport or to what extent are you uh, trying to do journalism like this, which is actually like digging into it in a deeper. And we also do projects with MLS and MLS clubs. I mean, we, we take money from them to, uh-huh. to work with them and, uh-huh. and produce stories for them. None that, none that appear in Howler. Oh, where do those stories um, go? With Major League Soccer, we created a, a digital magazine for them uh, in the 2012 season. Uh, no, sorry, 2013 season. We're doing a project now with Portland Timbers that's going to appear on their website throughout uh-huh. the season. We did a print magazine for the LA Galaxy last year that they sent out as part of a uh, uh, season ticket renewal drive. Oh, um, so they really can. It's not just they can shut down access to do they more can stories. Stop they can, business. They yeah. can shut down money that's coming to you for other things yes. that you're doing. Yes, and and we're always very clear with our readers, like, hey, we're doing this. This is how we stay in business, you know, and there's clearly a conflict of interest, but we're transparent about it. And we, it's akin to the way that Time Inc. has like a, a branded content section. And you'll see those, in, you know, those pieces in, in uh, Fortune or Wired, you know, mm-hmm. Tiny Nest and, and except ours, maybe there's even more, more removed because these don't appear in Howler, but um, it's the same people producing the content. So anyway, yeah. Um, they just changed the, the ASME just changed their guidelines. Did you see that? The uh, American Society magazine editors that that editors are now allowed to also do branded. Content. Look at that! Yeah, um, we do it as a matter of uh, necessity, but yeah, but uh, <laughs> but that's good to know. Um, we're now eligible for awards. I yeah, guess. yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about like the hustle of like uh, <laughs> trying to run a new magazine. What are you talking about? This is really easy. You- <laughs> yeah. I mean, you mentioned this like. Uh, thing that I I was in, involved in in some way, which yes. is like this bus trip that we were gonna like. You were like our you were our hostage. <laughs> Basically, I can. This is a story that I could tell. Howler <laughs> sponsored a bus trip to go see a U.S. soccer game in Hartford, Connecticut, from New York. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people went, including myself and my wife and uh, Josh Dean, who's been on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was crazy traffic, so the bus got stopped in traffic. And basically, we never made it to the game, <laughs> and we pulled off in uh. like. Somewhere in Connecticut, Fairfield, Fairfield, Connecticut, and watched it in like an Irish pub that we found. But I think it does epitomize to me, like, first of all, nobody was mad. I feel like you feel really bad about it, but I don't, I mean, maybe I missed it, but like, this is a bus full of people who were just like, all right, that's life. Well, I think that my outward show of (laughs) grief over this helped people not to be quite as mad. I think that had something to do with it. We, I did, I did see one really upset tweet while we were in that bar and, and, and I had already bought pictures for everybody and like gone around and apologized personally to every single person who had gotten off that bus. Uh, and I saw one upset tweet and I went to, I went to the guy and I found him. And I was like, hey, look, I saw this tweet. I know you're upset. Like, let's talk. Like, what can I do to <laughs> right. make you happier? And there wasn't really anything, but that was it. It was people were super, super friendly. And but I, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, which is like you are the face in some way. I mean, there are other people too involved, but you're the f- Mm-hmm. the face in particular this situation mm-hmm. of this magazine so it's not a faceless entity where like you were on the bus like right. it wasn't like you were like back it's not like at delta the... right yeah. if you're delayed on delta and you get pissed yeah. like the ceo of delta is not going to come up and personally apologize <laughs> you and buy you a beer <laughs> that would be awesome but 
you're doing all these things to try to like make it work, whether it's this doing mm-hmm. work for the MLS teams mm-hmm. or this kind of like, okay, we'll do events. Uh, I've seen you online. Like you're doing like Reddit, ask me anything. Like it seems like you're like keeping a lot of balls in the air. Mm-hmm. And like, does that feel like personally sustainable as a thing to do? What I'm trying to do is to build like a team that can take on some of these stuff. So I no longer have responsibility for all of our social media, for mm-hmm. instance, right? That was exhausting. And, you know, and that's our only marketing. So it was really important. Now we have a great, great, great guy who tweets. He lives in Toronto. I've never met him in person. Uh, oh, really? You know, like a lot of our team. I mean, it's funny, but he's fantastic. And it's such a load off to know that, okay, the voice of Howler is in good hands and this guy can help us promote stuff. And we have a team of web editors who, who, who accept submissions and do my apologizing to writers for me and say, look, we haven't monetized the website, so we can't pay for this, but we'll be happy to publish it. You know, and we'll work with you. They, we have photo editors. We have Mark and I were editing every piece in the first issue. And that was, took a lot of time and things were late. And so I've, Mark has actually stepped back a little bit. He, t- he took a different job and, and is sort of a lot more busy now and also had a kid and whatever. Um, but uh, I've brought on, so we now have an editor who works full-time at Sports Illustrated. We now have an editor who works full-time at Penthouse. Uh, we now have an editor yeah. who works, you know, uh, at Vanity Fair. And so, you know, I've tried to bring on guys who, who know how to make a good magazine and are also like soccer. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, it's feeling less and less like, I mean, it still feels like this massively that, if I stop pushing the boulder up the hill, it'll just sort of start to roll down and crush everybody in its path, which I think is the feeling that most small business owners have. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about the activist, but so if you were to constantly turn your legs yes, to keep it going, yes. or it's not going to go anywhere. Yes. And like you're going and you grow slowly, but like everything, you feel like everything could fall apart the moment you take your eye off it. What I'm trying to do is, you know, and I'm sure you feel the same way, is, is build something that can run if you if you have to take a day off or if you if you were to go away or if, if you know, you want to build like an institution rather than like uh, your thing. Mm-hmm. The, the, the easiest way to do that is by is by having money and hiring people. Right. Uh, but we're, you know, there's a whole other sort of um, economy that we're dealing in, which is interested volunteers slash we pay a little bit. But like no, nowhere near what we would need to get these people full time or or really what they deserve in any case. I can't expect anything to come in on time because I really am just grateful that they're giving me any time. You know what I mean? So I can't like be like, hey, you missed a deadline. What, right. You know, you're gone. You know what it, I mean? But it puts you in a tricky spot as an editor because totally. you, you need to use those hammers to get the magazine out. Yeah, right. And so it's a constant like it does feel still like it's like force of personality that has to get things done rather than money mm-hmm. money is a way to to avoid that but in lieu of that it's like always being on and always being like how can we how can i squeeze like every ounce of your talent from you and get you to give me as much time as you can possibly give me and that's like with everyone i work with and and some people really rise to it and they they're amazing and like i don't know how how they don't have full-time jobs doing what they're doing like what they do for me because they're great sometimes it doesn't work and that's okay like you learn that you, you try to, I've gotten better, I think, at deciding, you know, we get a lot of interest. We get a lot of people just sort of cold calling and saying, hey, how can I be involved? What can I do? Yeah. Which is awesome. Um, but I've, I've gotten better at deciding, okay, you're going to be a great addition to this. Like you, ha- you, you sort of fit with the people who have been successful with us in the past. I mean, that, I don't know. That sounds really HR-y, <laughs> which, you know, I don't think of myself in that role at all, but I guess I am in a, in a certain way. We have a team of like 20, 25, 30 people who contribute to Howler. I mean, and I'm not talking about those aren't freelance writers or illustrators or photographers. Those are people who, you know, we have five copy editors. 
um, you know, because every piece goes through three rounds of copy edits yeah. or proofreads. And we have, you know, two photo editors. We have like eight editorial assistants. I mean, I think most places they'd be called interns, but we call them editorial assistants because I f- hope that helps them on their resumes a little bit. Uh, you know, things like that. And it's just this crazy team of people who are everywhere and doing great work, but it's a real project to coordinate it all. And there's no office or there is no, no, it's no. just all remote. Yeah. We're all remote. Yeah, well, I admit I had, I know nothing about this, but I was reading your Reddit, uh, ask me anything uh, from, I don't know when it was, but like three or four people asked about like the people who left Howler who started another yeah. uh, soccer magazine, which I had heard of as well, but I haven't, mm-hmm. I'm not that familiar with. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think of them as former business partners. Yeah. Obviously. So I, they, you, they were people you launched it with. Yeah. 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 And, um, I have negative feelings because they tried to close down Howler. And that's not something that we really talked about publicly mm-hmm. because there was no reason to, I mean, it could only look bad for us, I guess. And, and it was a, it was a, a squabble among the founders of this company. And ultimately I like, I'm really happy with the people we have working on it now, but yeah, I mean, that was a tough time. I learned a lot about the law and (laughs) (laughs) business and, uh, how to, how to deal with like huge, huge disruptions. And, you know, what I felt like was bad faith on the part of business partners, which is a really hard and kind of terrible thing to have to go through, but we made it and I think we're stronger and, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like I'm being very vague and you probably have a lot more questions. No, though. I mean, well, I don't need to dig into the like personal disputes or really, really as much as I guess I'm just interested in, you know, this shit is hard enough sure. in a way. Yeah. And a thing that I've personally found is that uh, it's very hard not to make everything personal. Like mm-hmm. even if just people started another soccer magazine that were you knew and had nothing to do, they hadn't worked with you. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that uh, you could take personally and be sort of like, why did you have to do this? Like right. we're trying to do this. It didn't help that it looked exactly like our first two issues, you know, because they were the designers. So. <laughs> oh, they were the designers <laughs> yeah. of, of the yeah. original Max. <laughs> yeah. So now we have a competitor who looks exactly like us, which is not good. I don't know. Maybe the, 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 good, the good argument is that it forces us to sharpen what we do, right? I mean... That, that's a way to look at it. And I think we, I mean, just in terms of the team, like people working on it, I think we came out way stronger. The, the root of the problem was that they, we negotiated like an equity split. When you start a company, you have to, you have to divide up equity. And even though it's not worth anything. And ours, ours was very nearly 25, 25, 25, 25. I was the only person who had more uh, because I quit my job and was doing it full time. Um, but I had just a little bit more. Um, and, uh, and after two issues, they came to us and said, we want, you know, we want a 50%. And so, and Mark and I had kept over just slightly over 50 because we felt like, okay, if anything, if, if anything happens, we have like that, that's our safety net. And we felt like, you know, we're two issues in, we're like, we're doing well, but we're nothing still. We, we basically said, look, we don't want to re- renegotiate. We've, we feel like it's pretty fair uh, to say the least right now. And uh, that wasn't the answer they wanted. At a certain point, then Mark, Mark offered them equity from his own share to get them to 50 and they they turned that down and they said it had to come from me so it was it got weirdly personal and i didn't really understand that i mean looking back i can see things a little differently but i still feel like it was a little bit unnecessary but i mean that's my own perspective i'm sure they would have a different story to tell it's crazy how uh i've been through this myself like trying to calculate uh what imaginary money is worth you know it's well that's like, the funny so it's not worth anything right so they and own trying to tell yourself like okay well but i don't want to give it up i don't know it's like you can get really crazy over it the, the really crazy part was they owned 45 point like something percent of the magazine and then 
when they were when they decided to quit, they then sent us a bill for three hundred and I want to get this right three hundred and ten thousand dollars, which was according to them the market value of the work they had provided for Howler. And we were like, okay, well, look, this is how it works. If you own ha- nearly half of the company, then that's like that's your that's what you get. Like that's not you, you don't then get to bill the company some magical figure <laughs> of money. Thank God, my my wife's uh, uncle does this kind of law and sort of took me on pro bono. Um, but it was like the six month process of like educating while fighting about how these things go. Like, was there a point in there where you just, where you thought like, fuck it, like I'll go do something else? No. I mean, there was a point when I thought, oh, well, if this gets really bad, then I may have to, we may have to shut down Howler, then the actual, just the name Howler and, and restart it or something. Because when you're arguing over that stuff, you're not actually arguing over money. There wasn't, there was really like very little in the bank account. What you're arguing about is like IP, like, the logo and right, right. the list of subscribers and email addresses and things like that, which are intangible sort of, right? I mean, there are things that you can redo or change. Right, um, you could build up that again yeah, somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I didn't want to have to do that. I mean, that, that seemed like a really bad scenario and like not not good for our readers at all, you know? like You build up that trust and then you have to build it up again. It's, yeah, and you have to explain like why why things are different or why this disruption happened or why we're late now because this, this thing happened or whatever, you know, it's, it's not good. So do you have like a personal plan for like, I want to get this thing to this point by this point in my life, or I will go do something else. Or are you like, you can do a subsistence yeah, magazine yeah. making yeah. Uh, indefinitely. We've never even had a business plan. <laughs> do you guys have a business plan for the Atavis? Uh We do have a business plan. Yes. Is that helpful? I mean, it's not like a it's not like a one document somewhere, but we we've always had a, a general plan for where everything's going, uh-huh. and which is helpful only in the sense that we're like, well, that didn't work, so now we're going to do this. Yeah. So uh, I guess I have that in my head. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, I've just sort of jumped in, and it's worked so far, which is not great because I feel like I got lucky sometimes. Like, hey, okay, everything's worked mostly. Like, you know, there are setbacks there. Are, problems but i think my wife would like me to have like a a point at which i stop we launched howler in summer of 2012 uh the like a day or two after the kickstarter campaign ended uh my wife and i she wasn't my wife yet we moved to california so she could go to grad school mm-hmm. um so we moved across the country we got married a couple months later and i had quit my job as soon as the kickstarter thing ended so those are like kind of stressful each of those by itself is kind of a stressful event mm-hmm. and so altogether it was <laughs> it was just kind of a crazy period she wanted to know like okay what is the plan all i could say is well i gotta get the next issue out by whatever and you know i think there's a check coming from you know this thing and you know and so I, i've been lucky i've been able to call together like a living by i haven't actually taken a single penny from howler uh I paid taxes on it because that's how that's how that works but um <laughs> But I haven't been paid by Howler. I've been paid by doing other jobs that come to us sort of tangentially. So, you know, if I get a writing gig, you know, to cover soccer or, you know, we're doing a project for Gatorade right now that's really cool. We're getting more and more of those. And that seems like a way forward for us, like sort of an agency slash magazine model where you have, you know, you do client work, but you also you also make this thing uh, that, that sort of serves as like your billboard. What we're trying to do now is be more proactive and sort of organized and targeting when we go out and try to get that business rather than like just take whatever comes to us because that's how it's worked so far. But I don't think a print magazine is ever going to be like the thing that I can just do full time. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it, maybe it is, but 
at our at our subscriber base it's not you know i'd love to double it and then and then double that and then if you get to 10,000 then you're like i think that that's like more sustainable like that's you know, because printing costs go up really marginally after a certain point. Huh. Um, and so it's really about scale. Like, if we can get more readers, then we'll we'll be fine. Um, but at this stage, it's like, okay, we pay for the magazine, but then, like, how do I eat? <laughs> you know? You cobble go when you're living exactly. in other ways. Yeah, yeah so you're, yeah. You're, you've been writing for Fusion, too. Yeah, Fusion hired me to launch their World Cup website for the summer. So I went to Miami for three months to live there. And, like, yeah, so, like, the hustle, right? That's That was stressful because my wife is in Memphis. I'm in... Miami at the, at the same token, but by the same, by the same token that allowed us to finally go on a honeymoon, like two years after, <laughs> two years after we got married. So we went to Italy the day after the world cup. Lovely. Now I'll tell you the only thing about that bus trip that really uh, bothered me. Okay. I've saved it to the end. I've been waiting. I've, I've, I felt like we needed to have this conversation. <laughs> I, I swear to God, it never uh, bothered me for a second. I thought it was actually great fun. Cause there's something really hilarious about it, uh-huh. about like getting on the bus to go to a soccer game and then like ending <laughs> up watching in a bar in yeah. Connecticut yeah. that yeah. I would never choose to go. To I think we should mention life. I-95 was insane. Yeah. Right? It was like a parking lot basically. I mean, and people, people, a part of the reason people weren't mad is cause they looked out and they were like, okay, this is not George's fault. This is just the world. This yeah. is life. Although the latter part, I feel like there's an unintended consequence of you feeling very apologetic mm-hmm. and then you buying everyone beers in the mm-hmm. bar and pictures of beer, which is that uh, some dude behind me on the bus like threw up oh, on yeah. the way home. I didn't know about that until we got off the bus. Um, <laughs> and that made me think I'm too old to be engaged in this at all, actually. I'm you know, it's funny. Yeah, but that that's not really when I think of like our reader. I don't know. I, I was surprised at that. Um, I think there were some shenanigans going on that that um, I was unaware of. And I think free booze, I don't know, how many people were on that bus? Like 60, 45, 60, something like that. One barfer out of 60. I'll take that ratio. All right. We'll give you that for the sake of the magazine (laughs) and how important it is to keep this magazine going. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks very much, George. Thanks for coming. Thank you. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks to George for coming in. I'm Evan Ratliff, the co-host. Thanks to my other co-hosts. Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Uh, thanks always to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and our intern, Rachel Mabe, and to our sponsors, one of which is Aspiration. Check them out at aspiration.com slash longform, and you can sign up there. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>